It is easy to think that the current political rhetoric of today is the harshest possible. No one could ever have been so base or crude. That's an understandable conclusion to reach. Almost no one would think such refined fellows as the founders and the representatives of the several states would engage in hyperbole or sweeping generalizations. The current crop of presidential candidates will remind us that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. Until the next one. But ask a delegate to the ratifying convention of New York or Pennsylvania about zesty debates, and you'll get an earful. The ratifiers, it turns out, could grandstand better than most. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 102. Hello, and welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Pick up a copy of my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort. You can read about it at culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort or find it on Amazon in Kindle or paperback. Check out my favorite spice company, Savory Spice, to stock up on pumpkin spice. Yes, I said it. Load up for the fall baking, which is not too very far away. Enter culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice to shop single spices, spice blends, especially the Mount Hood Toasted Onion Rub, and much more. Culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice. Cameron Q returns to the show. Cameron runs Patriot Tours NYC. She's going to give us an update of her business. I invited Karen on to discuss the founding from an on-the-ground sense and what ratification meant to New York. Karen has innovated rather impressively, and that's part of the explanation she's going to give for her business. Our business today is to discuss some aspects of colonial life and the Revolutionary War, as well as life in New York as the war started. You may hear some thumps and bumps in the background of Karen's portion. There was construction going on in her apartment building, and sometimes it got loud. Eh, New York, what are you going to do? Hello, Karen. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hi, Dan. It's wonderful to be here. I'm glad you're back. So I've already given the people a short explanation of Mrs. Q., and how sometimes she will answer and sometimes Karen will answer. And that sounds like a sequel to uh, Sybil, but that may be before some people's time. Uh, before we get going and before we get into that part, I'm just curious. We were talking a little bit. Can you give us some account of what's going on today in New York City? From the clips on social media, New York looks like it's dying. Are you giving tours? What's going on? So I have not given a tour since the end of March. And 
I don't know when I'll be giving a tour again. So one could probably think, assume correctly that my business is dead for now, since that is what I do is give historic walking tours. The area through which I give my tours, Lower Manhattan, is in a terribly depressed state with uh, many of the places still having uh, um, wood boarding up their windows, including such beautiful buildings like the Woolworth Building. St. Paul's Chapel and Trinity Church, both of them newly renovated um, with more than probably $100 million spent, are still closed completely to the public, including their graveyards. Federal Hall National Memorial um, is also closed. Francis Tavern, the museum is closed, although the tavern is operating out on the sidewalk in you know, open air as we're allowed to in New York. So everything along the tour route that I would talk about is also closed, you know, in addition to, as I said, it being very depressed down there. There are no tourists in the city. I think you've probably seen videos of people walking around in Times Square and it's empty. The subway is at very low capacity, which makes it not all that safe to ride and that there's always safety in numbers. So if there are only a few people on a subway car and something goes wrong, you're less likely to get help. So it's a very, I should say, unusual state for New York. I've lived here since 1977, so I was here during some of the worst years of the city, but I've never seen it quite like this. It's horribly sad because I lived in New York by, I don't even know when, late 80s, and I like the city. There's a lot not to like about it, and that's fine. I get all that. But there's, when the city is vibrant, there is, it, it, it has a personality that, well, <laughs> it suits me quite well, actually. Um, it's, that's really, that's, that's too bad. That's very, very sad. And, and I think that's a really good point that you hit there, that even in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, when there were a lot of problems with New York, there was still that vibrancy. So there were still lots of places to eat, lots of clubs to go to, lots of uh, movie theaters, as well as a revivalist movie theaters where you could go see old films, lots of music, whatever your particular interest in any of the arts where there were somewhere to go. It wasn't that expensive. You could hang out with your friends and not need a lot of money to have a really good time. And I think that kept the city going. Plus, of course, Wall Street was still here and Wall Street publishing, the garment industry and some industries that have uh, completely abandoned New York were also still here in their prime. Uh, well, it's for another show to discuss the future of New York, but that's still, that's, I, I, I hope, whatever good hope does, that somebody finds a way, well, take more than one somebody, that many somebodies find a way to at least bring the pulse of the city back, even if some of the neighborhoods change, give it some vibrancy. That would be, that would be good. Well, I think, you know, on a scale that we're seeing across the country where people are moving back to smaller towns here in my neighborhood in Queens, there's um, activity that you would have never seen before. Whereas people here in my neighborhood would have gone into Manhattan to eat or see a film or hear, you know, a concert or some performance. People are all here in my neighborhood in the outdoor cafes. 
since there's no indoor dining yet, all of the little community neighborhood restaurants have outdoor dining. And it's really interesting to walk around at night and seeing all of the lights and hearing different types of music and seeing people outside eating. So there's quite a bit of a, do I want to say, almost a Caribbean atmosphere to my neighborhood right now. Really? My thought was this sounds european with the outside dining but maybe where you are has more of a caribbean flair but i think the point is still that there's there's a vibrancy which is a wonderful thing to see it's it's really interesting very nice and a lot of my neighbors are hoping that this sidewalk dining will return in future summers you know regardless of whether or not the city recovers because people are enjoying it so much yeah well i hope so too so sort of a let's say, a positive in all of this? Well, then, yes. A, a positive for the community because that's keeping the people who run the restaurants probably live a lot closer to you than the guy who works in Midtown. So there's there's some benefits to all that. That's I, good. I think so. I hope so. But, you know, there have been times in New York's history where the city has been completely decimated um, for instance, the American Revolution. At the end of the American Revolution, the city had been burned twice. It was in complete disarray. Many buildings were destroyed. Infrastructure was gone. Merchants had left. So in the late 1780s, we faced sort of the same type of hurdles. And how were we going to rebuild New York City as the premier city of a new nation? And we did a pretty good job. I think so, too. And you have served me up a perfect lob for transition into Mrs. Q. So give us some background of Mrs. Q. Is she a composite? Is she representative of somebody particular? Mrs. Q is a composite character that I created as a living history character to reenact um, Revolutionary War period events. When my tour stopped, I started using Mrs. Q as a way to keep my tour customers engaged since I could no longer offer them additional tours. On Thursday nights, I do a live with Mrs. Q history lesson. So Mrs. Q is a lady born in colonial New York in the early 1750s, and she incorporates what was a bit different about New York and that Mrs. Q's parents are from Naples, which is not yet Italy. And uh, her her husband, Mr. Q's family, is from Spain. And it wasn't unusual to see people from these places in New York at that time as they came as merchants and fur traders and settled in New York. So her background is a little bit different from the typical Dutch, Scottish, Irish, or English, uh, but she is part of a small community in New York. She grew up in the Hudson Valley and eventually took over her father there's merchant business in the city of New York. That seems unusual for a lady to do that, but we do have historical precedent for that. And that one of the generals in the American Revolution, William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling, his mother was also a lady merchant in New York City. So we do see a few examples of women running these businesses in New York. So I patterned her on that. Her husband, Mr. Q, was a fur trader and now is a gun merchant in New York, and she is a European merchant. So she sells goods imported from Europe, specifically fabrics and things like that, to the ladies in the town um, to have their dresses made. 
So when you see Mrs. Q, Mrs. Q is always dressed in very elegant New York fashion as her customers would expect a lady that they would do business with to be dressed. She also also has her hair done and various things like that. So she, she appears as a New York City lady and uh, tells the story from her point of view. Now, since her background is not English and she is a businesswoman, a merchant, as is her husband, she is what we might call a Whig. And this is similar to the Whigs and Tories of the government in England at the time, um, the Whigs being led by William Pitt and the Tories being King George III's party. So the Whigs are pro-freer trade. They're in favor of more individual rights in the colonies. And they tend to, when the Revolutionary War comes, be patriots or rebels where the Tories in the town are going to be more interested in supporting the king and whatever grants or business or trading routes, um, they'll want to secure those as they receive them from the king. So Mrs. Q and Mr. Q are Whigs and will become patriots and rebels. Um, Mr. Q will serve in the Revolutionary War. And during the war, Mrs. Q is going to live in a town called Haverstraw in the uh, Hudson Valley as New York will be occupied by British forces. So I, I think the time that we're going to talk about today is the ratification period, the 1787 through 1789 period. Mr. and Mrs. Q have returned to New York City. Mrs. Q is back to running her merchant business, and she is watching as what we would call federalists and anti-federalists battle it out in New York City over whether or not the Constitution as written ought to be ratified. Well done. So I want to just mention the thing. I watched one of your recent Mrs. Q, I'm, I'm going to get the Thursday videos, and you were, she was in Haverstraw, and there was a, an interesting, Mr. Q wrote a note or a letter to her and reminded her to practice arms. Yes. And all the ladies to practice arms, and he made sure there was plenty or which to practice. So this, and the the idea of the women taking over for the man, I think this is also, I'm going to get this wrong, but it wasn't, didn't Theodosia take over her dad's business? No, um, her husband, um, oh, okay. Aaron Burr's uh, wife, yes, during the time that Aaron Burr was away serving the New York Assembly, he she ran his law business for him. So there was a, this was almost expected. Yes, and and it was, and in my fictitious world, Mrs. Q and Theodosia Prevost Burr are very good friends because they're both <laughs> unusual course. ladies, and that they're both uh, well educated. They're both independent. Um, they both um, are respected by their husbands as being equals to them in all things. Well, we're going to get back to Theodosia in a minute. So let's talk a little bit about the women and guns. Yes. Well, during the Revolutionary War, the men are all off at war. Um, Mrs. Q speaks about this, that her husband is now gone, as is her son, um, both off to go to war. She is back in Haverstraw, where they both grew up with her in-laws. And uh, she remarks at one point that the only men are the old men and the little boys. 
So the ladies now will have to take care of everything that the grown men would have done um, while they're gone. And that would be everything from she's talking about trading to raising the animals. She talks about how she's lucky that her father-in-law can slaughter animals because she has no stomach for it herself. Um, but she does talk about Mr. Q's um, 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 encouragement to them that all the ladies must take up arms. The ladies must learn to defend the homes and the properties. He says, especially in the Hudson Valley, as the British will be looking to take that property. Um, their property especially overlooks the Hudson River, so it's opportune for watching the movements of the Royal Navy through that area. He encourages them to all practice shooting, both with muskets, rifles, and pistols. And he also warns them against any strangers in the town who might be pretending to be friends, but may be spying for the English. And he tells Mrs. Q to use her good sense in these things hmm. and tells her that he is fully confident that she is capable of taking care of things in his absence and will succeed and that they will be together in the future. Fascinating. So a very interesting letter from him. And uh, he also, um, in that letter, of course, explains to her that he is in disagreement with the way Commander Washington has laid out the troops for the upcoming invasion of New York, which in history will begin tomorrow, August 22nd. Interesting. So is Commander Washington going to soon become General Washington? Yes, he is General Washington or Commander-in-Chief. And he oh, is located in New York City. And Mr. Q... And a number of New York City men believed that the um, attack on New York would not come to Manhattan Island or New York City, but that it would come through Brooklyn. And there is some disagreement over this. Um, Mr. Q and the other gentlemen believe the full attack will come through Brooklyn. Um, General Washington believes that if there is an attack on Brooklyn, it will be a distraction to a greater attack that will be mounted on the city of New York. And um, I can just tell you as a historian that the men, the gentlemen from New York will be correct and that the main attack is going to come into Brooklyn. It will begin tomorrow on August 22nd and Washington will scramble to get himself and more troops into um, Brooklyn. That battle will um, take place over a week. I should remember looking at your posts last year about that and you did some uh on the shore videoing talking about you know behind me over my shoulder yes 200 whatever years ago you could imagine this vast and it's hard to imagine but it's it's an impressive thing to consider and this is one of the things i like about well the tours but also the mrs q thing is you're giving something that no book no high school no college colloquially, maybe one, uh, really explains. And this is one of the things we're going to talk about with ratification, but a sense of what did it look like looking out into the ocean to find, look out the sea. Wow. It's not just like there's a couple of boats. There's a lot. Um, yes. And and I, I'm going to repost those videos, by the way, um, on, on on Facebook and on YouTube. Um, so that people can see them again on the anniversary dates of the battle. But that was something I learned early on when I began doing tours about 15 years ago and, and paid attention to which stories were most engaging to my customers. And I found that when we were standing someplace 
and I could show a print of what it looked like then. And they could look past me and imagine they were seeing it as I told the story that that was so much more effective and they remembered it so much better than if they'd read anything that I realized that maybe the key to reaching a modern audience is through in-person interaction. And I thought, well, if they're responding to me as a, as a modern woman, maybe they would respond even better to an 18th century woman that they would be more, even more intrigued by listening to her telling these stories. And so Mrs. Q kind of came out of that and a challenge from a reenactor friend of mine to join the reenactor community. So a number of things were going on when I invented her, but she is, has become very successful. I get more viewers every week. I get um, messages from all over the country about how much people are enjoying um, um, spending time with Mrs. Q and learning about the American Revolution as she lived through it. Well, it's a it's a brilliant idea, and some of the and I, I, adding support to your idea that putting and you've done this before on the Patriot page, the um, like for example Wall Street or Pearl is our Pearl Street, yes, and then and then now it, yes, it, sometimes you've got to really stretch your imagination to figure out that that's the same place, and. and- it's I, I those are very popular when I do those pictures where I juxtapose then and now pictures when I can find them. I spend a lot of time looking for original prints in order to do that. Uh, but even when you're standing there, um, looking at the print yourself in the same spot today, it's just overwhelming to believe that it once looked like you know what you were seeing. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to think that from from Trinity Church down there was water. Yes. How do it's it's it boggles the brain. It it's it is um it is really um really interesting. I mean when when I do my tours and I walk around when I'm talking in my mind that's the city I see and I try very hard to recreate it for my tour customers. Cool. All right, well you did mention that we're going to talk a little bit about ratification. Yes. Um, both as maybe what it felt like on the ground, but also in New York City in general, and what sense Americans in 2020 have of ratification. I think mostly they think <laughs> that what they got from school was it happened. That's it. And it um, was unanimous, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, it was rubber stamped. I mean, what was the point of having it? Of course, we're going to do this. <laughs> and, and there were a few guys around called anti-federalists who were just anti-government crackpots. Yeah, of course. Uh, I want to discuss something you've been working on, which may surprise maybe nearly everybody. And it's not that you're working on it, but it's the content. Uh, there is a sense of outrage and hyperbole and certain doom that seems so familiar from the media today, but exists then. And for support, I'm going to read a quote from a document you sent me. Quote, as long as the liberty of the press continues unviolate and the people have the right of expressing and publishing their sentiments upon every public measure, it is next to impossible to eligible a free nation. The state of society must be very corrupt and base indeed when the people in possession of such a monitor as the press can be induced to exchange the heaven-born blessings of liberty for the galling chains of despotism. 
end quote. Don't you love it? I do. That reads like something from today, but it's not. Of course. I, I mean, um, the hyperbole then was just as serious as today, although you can see it was, the language was much more colorful and entertaining. But absolutely, that was the debate at that time as well, that if the other guy wins, it is the end of everything. It will be tyranny. We'll be in chains. Our freedom will be taken away. And, and it was very much like that. I know for sure, because my specialty is New York, that that was the constant state of debate in New York. And I think there may have been some of that in, in Virginia and in Pennsylvania. But I think, as usual, New York was probably what we might say ground zero for hyperbolic debate. I think part of the reason for that is that New York had the highest ratio of lawyers to population of any city in the colonies also known at that time as the damn lawyers of New York. So you see, some things have not changed at all. <laughs> well, and, and so a lot of this dialogue is lawyers who are, you know, they're eloquent. They're, their profession is words, and they just go at it with each other. And I always have a, a, this idea in my mind that they're reading their insults back and forth, and, and they're actually laughing when they read what the other party has said about them, and then they sit down, chuckle, and, and figure out how they're going to lob the next insult back. Maybe so. Now, there's an, an interesting twist to that quote, which is that, that person speaking is speaking against a Mr. Wilson who dares suggest that the Constitution should have specific enumerated powers not just this grand sweeping, uh, and they go on later to talk about this, and the same speaker is talking about the supremacy clause. Why, of course, the supremacy clause will take care of all of this. Of course, we rule the states. And Mr. Wilson says, uh, no. So this guy's arguing for a central government, and yet it, the, the passions haven't changed. No, they haven't. And I think, though, that one of the things that that at least many people i know and some of them very well educated intelligent people don't really understand today is that the factions we refer to as federalist and anti-federalist both agreed that there ought to be a government that held the states together so they both were in favor of that government they just were arguing about how much power that government ought to have. So anti-federalists were not some kind of crazy anarchists as they were accused of being. They simply wanted to make sure that the limitations on that central government were enumerated or listed, or as one of um, our, our delegates from New York said, um, if it is not, you know, listed, if, it's, if these things are not enumerated, it is absurd to think that we will get them. And he's specifically talking about what became the 10th Amendment. So he says that if, if, if it is not stated here that everything not listed in the Constitution is reserved to the states, it is absurd to think that the states will get those powers. It has to be stated here in the Constitution. Boy, there's a lot here. Uh, let's go back to the New York part for just a minute. One of the reasons I think New York was so hotly 
debated was the Federalist Papers were written almost entirely to convince New Yorkers to vote for ratification because they were on the fence. And it, and it wasn't even at that, as compelling as the writing is, and before we knew that Hamilton was a liar, even those documents didn't really do a fabulous job of swaying the public. No, they did not in New York. And, and you know, it's interesting because you just said the name, which even at that time was a lightning rod of controversy in New York, Hamilton. So today we learn that everyone loved Hamilton and everyone still loves Hamilton. But it wasn't true that everyone in New York loved and adored and worshipped Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton already by the time of the constitution was like a political lightning rod in New York. And, um, and one gentleman in New York who wrote under the name mentor, um, you know, the idea that I'm a mentor, I'm an older, more sophisticated gentleman said that Hamilton was just, you know, some young kid who had basically written all of George Washington's letters while he was a commander, had no worldly experience or knowledge of things, and wants to tell everyone how we should structure a new country, and and pretty much laughed at him. And that, that was a, a merchant named Isaac Ledyard. And that was the view of many people. Hamilton was only 30 years old at the time, and there were many gentlemen in New York who were lawyers and merchants, they were well-educated, they were well-versed in international business, or they were well-versed in the common law, and they disagreed very much with Hamilton. There was also concern that Hamilton, since his high profile and much of his influence and power came through very wealthy and powerful landed families in New York, that his, his let's say, um, advocacy for the people might not be true. That that might be something he was saying, but that he would not truly come through on. Boy, <laughs> talk about prescient. So, so we, you know, Hamilton is the only delegate to the Constitutional Convention from New York who didn't walk out. He was the only one who stayed and signed it. The other two delegates walked out and refused to continue discussion. That's interesting. Who were the other two? The other two delegates were, um, oh, it was uh, Yates and Lansing, um, John Lansing and Robert Yates, who were both lawyers in New York. Um, Robert Yates was um, a Supreme Court judge in New York. John Lansing was also a lawyer. He'd been the mayor of Albany. And um, to give you some legal lineage, um, Robert Yates was taught the law by the great William Livingston, um, who was John Jay's father-in-law, and John Lansing studied law under Robert Yates. So there's this, you know, lineage of uh, the legal profession there that dates back to being rebellious against the crown. But both of them were insulted, and Federalists said that neither one of them were very good lawyers, um, neither were very intelligent, and and their ideas about the central government as proposed by the constitution being something that would interfere with interfere with the rights of the people and the states was completely dismissed because they were kind of seen as being well you know kind of beneath the level of a hamilton or madison and i think even madison said that yates was highly respected but he was zealously partisan hmm. so they kind of dismissed 
And and I think in in the document I sent you written by the gentleman in Pennsylvania, I think that that's one of the first things they say in their document, that the Pennsylvania delegation that didn't like the Constitution was dismissed as being like country bumpkins who weren't educated and didn't know anything anyway. And that the bulk of the men in the Constitutional Convention who were for the Constitution were from the cities. And that the rural areas were looked down upon as not being intelligent enough to participate in that debate. Well, that doesn't sound familiar, does it? Right? No, not at all. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to talk about that. Um, the, actually, it turns out to be two two files. But before we get into that part, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Are you a professional chef or cook and feel out of your depth with seafood? Do you want to up your seafood game and improve identification, fabrication, and preparation? If you are this cook, it is time to take a deep dive into fish and shellfish handling, cooking, and sourcing. The folks at Ruby, that's R-O-U-X-B-E, have a six-part, 70-lesson, and 150-video course on sustainable seafood, and is called Seafood Literacy. Jeff Barton Seaver has designed his course to show you how to source, prepare, cook, and even plate fish and shellfish. If you are a professional cook, the skills from Chef Seaver's class can give you the boost your career needs. Chef Seaver's course breaks down fish into categories such as flaky white flesh or dense meat, bivalve and crustaceans. You'll learn fish fabrication and cooking techniques, and even not cooking, such as crudo. For you pro cooks, the course counts as 15 continuing education hours from the American Culinary Federation Education Foundation and comes with a certificate. And after you've completed the course, you have lifetime access to the content for reminders or refreshers. Go through the course at your own pace, but enroll now for the next class is happening soon. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash seafoodrx to sign up. Register before September 3rd, 2020 and save 20%. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash seafoodrx to enroll and enter code early SFL20 at checkout. That said again is culinarylibertarian.com slash seafoodrx to take your professional fish skills to the next level. Now let's get back into the show. The, the the document you sent me, and I gotta, I don't have it. I should have pulled it up. It was a scan from, I think it was New York City Library. So my first question is, can I share that link on the show notes page? Yes, it's a public domain document. Okay, so that'll be uh, culinarylibertarian.com/slash one hundred two. Uh, there's two links, and it's. Well, you can explain what it is. My observations are that there's some interesting things about typeset where S's look like F's. And until your eyes get used to reading these words, it's really hard to understand what they're writing. And they're, you know, technology is great. 
it's a little on the fuzzy side, but you know what? <laughs> it's, it's, it's worth going through because the exchanges and the information and the, and the banter is just fascinating. Right. So the document that I sent you is in two parts, and it's uh, notes of the uh, Pennsylvania delegation to the Constitutional Convention and all of their, um, um, what do I say, disagreements. And it's also a um, description of what their experiences were like there. It is difficult to read because of the typeset. I'm going to send you another document. Um, when we're finished, that um, you're free to also post a link to. And this is in modern typeset. And it is the um, ratification document of the Constitution by the state of New York. And it's very similar to that document, but you, you can read it. And New York's ratification document, this doesn't have page numbers, but it's probably about 10 to 13 pages long with all of New York's gripes, which are pretty uh -huh. much the same as the Pennsylvania document. So if people have difficulty reading that, they can just skip over and read this um, ratification document from New York. Um, I think that the um, anti-federalists, as we might call them, and, and the term anti-federalist, I think originated in New York by the federalists as a pejorative term for the people who wouldn't just blanket ratify the constitution. So um, I, I, think, I think that's the origins of it. And eventually it was used as a badge of honor in New York. And I, I have a, a document here um, that's critical of the constitution and says that it's obviously been written by all of these lawyers. And how can you trust all of these lawyers? you know, who spend their time, you know, creating language that's so complicated, no one can understand it anyway. And so that you need to hire them in order to understand what the document meant in the first place. And it's signed by someone who says a true anti-federalist, and then in very large letters, and not a lawyer. So, <laughs> so you can see some of that debate going on as well. Um, although I, I think that that the, I think the author of that may actually have been a lawyer too, because there's a lot of you know, not telling the truth going on at the time. But back to that Philadelphia document, what happens is the delegates go off to the Constitutional Convention, and most of them believe that they're there to modify the Articles of Confederation, the document that created the government that we had through the Revolutionary War and after. What they don't know is that behind the scenes, a group of men, uh, Madison and Hamilton included, have already decided that they're going to scrap the Articles of Confederation and write a new constitution. So when they arrive and they learn that that's the plan, uh, many of them are shocked and, and, and quite angry. And many of them only have permission of their state assemblies to modify the Articles of Confederation. They don't have permission even to write an entirely new document. So that is where a lot of this debate begins. And we see in the Pennsylvania document, the delegation saying that. We, we thought we were, were coming to modify the current document and then find that you know, behind our backs, it's already been decided that we're going to create a whole new document and a whole new government. And we're a little bit skeptical about this. And, and both um, Yates and Lansing from New York had that same experience. So already Yates and Lansing do not trust Hamilton because they believe Hamilton has gone behind their backs. And, and, and one of the one of the documents that Mentor writes, he says that Hamilton, and later you might know that John Adams will say this about Hamilton as well, that he's an intriguer, 
that he prefers to do things behind the scenes and not do them out in the open where they're subject to debate. So we see this um, criticism of Hamilton come up in New York in the constitutional debates, and we see Adams say that about Hamilton later, too, just because I know you love Hamilton. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so we, we see this kind of bait and switch, we might call it. So they go off to the Constitutional Convention, they experience this bait and switch, and a bunch of delegates, after just a week or so there, say, we're out. We're walking out. We leave. And Lansing and Yates from New York are two of those who step up and they walk out. And the authors of that Pennsylvania document I sent you, I believe, walked out as well. And the Pennsylvania document really is kind of an explanation of why they did and what they're angry about. And then they go into their whole list of things they say are wrong with the Constitution. Um, New Yorkers uh, have their list of things they say are wrong. And as you said, as a result, the Federalist Papers come out where they try to address these concerns on the part of um, there, you know, there were dissenters in Virginia as well. And um, these the Federalist Papers come out as an effort to address those concerns on the dissenters in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New York and, and others. And you can almost line up I didn't do it in preparation for this talk. The Federalist Papers, with some of the complaints, you know, coming out, you can see how they line up side by side. Um, and the Federalist Papers, at least in New York, are not very successful because up in Albany they're burning copies of the Constitution. And when Federalists tried to have a parade in favor of the Constitution in Albany, the Anti-Federalists filled a cannon with pebbles and put it on the parade route and threatened to shoot them with this cannon full of pebbles if they continued their parade through the city of Albany. So, wow, that's pretty serious. Yes, yeah, so you can see that there was, although we don't learn about it today, there was quite a lot of very um, heartfelt um, discussion about the Constitution and things that it needed. So each state, um, this is something we also don't learn in school, each state had to ratify the Constitution individually, and some of those states held their own ratification conventions. And in New York, we had a ratification convention that went on and on and on as the two sides, you know, um, fought bitterly over what what we call the anti-federalists wanted in the Constitution. And I think that you and I had a good laugh at what some of the things the anti-federalists wanted that turned out to be things we don't think we could live without today, hmm. being the things in the Bill of Rights. <laughs> so the anti-federalists couldn't have been such bad guys. And we see in the New York debates that Hamilton consistently arguing that all of these things that the men in New York want listed out specifically are implied in the Constitution. And some of the men in New York who are at that convention saying, no, they're not implied. And it's an absurd idea to think that they're implied. And if we go forward believing that, we will have none of these individual rights because governments always are full of corrupt people. They always hoard power. They never give it up. And we will lose some of the rights we already have here in New York battling with the crown. Rights like freedom of association, rights like freedom of the press, rights like freedom of religious worship, and things we have here in New York. They also wanted absurd things like a public trial by jury. 
Um, yeah, I was reading about that last night and just the- a, a warrant to be sworn so that you could be searched. No seizure of your personal property. I mean, they wanted all these crazy things, didn't they? Um, a public jury of your peers that bail could not be set so high that you couldn't pay it. Um, all kinds of crazy things they wanted. A right to privacy. So I don't think we could say the anti-federalists were crazy anti-government anarchists after all. Maybe it was the Federalists who were trying to hoard some power to themselves. Or maybe the anti-Federalists were just too, what's the word I want to say, um, too optimistic about human nature. I don't think that that's it. I think they were more realistic about the nature of government and what ends up with government. But there's an, an interesting thing, I think, the the I think what happens in school because I don't remember getting much of this, but granted, I was it's been a long time. The articles of, of Confederation get mentioned, and then the next sentence is then we had the Constitution, <laughs> and so the suggestion seems to be that the articles of Confederation didn't work, so everyone just agreed that let's just change it to this, and then we move on. And that's plainly not even close to right. So we can excuse textbook writers. No, we can't. But we will for condensing a lot. But we're going we're gonna to bring in a term that I think you've been talking about on the Mrs. Q show, which is fake news. And fake history. Fake history. So uh, even in Pennsylvania dissenters to the majority opinion, which may not really be dissent at all, except for, you know, consensus, were not being heard. So tell us about fake news in, in 1776. Right. And in Pennsylvania, I, I, I believe they were not being heard. And that, that is the reason they wrote that document, so that they would be heard. Um, so I'm not really sure what the state of the press was in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania at the time, but um, surely they were not getting their pieces published or they would not have um, needed to publish that document that is so long, I needed to send it to you in two pieces. <laughs> um, so, so that was their way of being heard, publishing something themselves. In New York, where the press was very diverse, both sides were being heard very loudly and, th and there was a fair amount of fakeness on both sides. Um, but as Mrs. Q said last night on her broadcast about fake news, she said, how do we know when we read these things, which printer to believe? Since we know in the 18th century that the printers do not feel they have an obligation to be objective. They feel they have only an obligation to print what they agree with. So how do we know then which printer is, is, is truthful and how do we know which articles are true? And Mrs. Q said last night, we know that by knowing the character of the men that are writing. And we know that by knowing their track record and what they've done before, what they've stood for, and what they've achieved. So um, for a woman of Mrs. Q's time, that would have been how you would judge what you were reading. So when you read something about Mr. Hamilton, you would look at what you knew about Hamilton, um, what you thought of him, and what your judgment was on his positions and what he'd you know, done in the past. Um, so for them, it was an issue of what we might call character or honor. 
gentleman, gentlemanliness maybe, or who they were as men. They would then use that to judge. And some people, of course, like today, simply agreed with whatever their faction told them. So if your income came from you know, a family that supported one point of view, you would support that point of view simply because it was expedient for you to do so. So just like today, we have people who kind of go with one herd or the other, either because that is the way they make a living, or it is what they emotionally support, or they're involved with someone on that side. And then somewhere in there, we have um, kind of orbiting around there, a number of free thinkers who are critical of everyone and are looking critically at who the men are who are writing, what they're writing, what they've achieved in the past, and whether or not based on what they're, whether or not what they're saying goes along with what you've seen them do. And as you said earlier, that was before we knew Hamilton was a liar. But at that time, people in New York were very critical of Hamilton because they said, what he's saying about the Constitution doesn't seem to fit with his place in the social and, and financial hierarchy of New York. Also, I should add, many people don't know that by the time the Constitution came around, Hamilton had already run what we in the modern, might day, modern day might call his scam called the Bank of New York, where Hamilton started a private bank got a charter for it, sold stock as investment in that bank, and then had a clause placed in the charter, which was approved by the New York legislature, that there could be no competitive bank established within some amount of time. And I apologize for not knowing what that amount of time was. So Hamilton had already pulled that on the people of New York. And you might know that, that Aaron Burr and the anti-federalists went about establishing, finding a legal way to establish a contrary bank. And people at that time said that Hamilton, of course, did this to make sure that all banking and financial interests would remain in the hands of the wealthy landed families of New York that he owed all of his prominence to. Now, this might be hard to answer in in this short podcast, but, and this is, I don't, I don't mean to derail my own show. Was Hamilton a central banker because of how he got where he was, or was he a central banker because he thought that was the right way to go, even if he didn't have the support of the wealthy? I don't know. Okay. And well, people- it's a big question. It's a good question, and I think you know some people um, who have um, who have um, written about Hamilton and uh, might know that uh, better. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they do, and they, at least two of them have been on the show. Right, and and <laughs> and I am fans of both of them and um, their work so, on Hamilton. Yes, we're talking about Michael Bolton and yes. Mike, Mike Mahari. So yes, and yeah. and 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 Brian McClanahan. Yeah, he has not been on the show. Oh, he hasn't. Yes, Brian. Not yet. Uh, also very good. I, you know, just to, just to sometimes, you know, trigger people on my Hamilton and Burr tour, I recommend his book, How Hamilton Screwed Up America. So just so that people can get an, a different look at Hamilton and understand that we are, you know, not supposed mm-hmm. to worship him. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it, 
could be a commercial for also Brian has the McClanahan Academy and there is a, a small course on that, but the the influence of Hamilton into into the Supreme Court and legislatures across the country is both impressive and distressing. I think any of those three would be able to answer that answer that question about Hamilton's banking intentions better. Okay. Well, I, I was just was curious. Um, I want to talk a little bit about those big clauses everybody knows from the Constitution. But before we do that, let's listen to the folks from Tasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, so one of the things about ratification is it was impassioned, but it was also a discussion of what the language was going to mean. And and then when it's voted on after this, in some cases, very long debate, it, it it's voted then and there, and it means the thing it is agreed to mean when they sign the paper. So we have plenty of keyboard constitutional experts who are all too sure the supremacy clause and the necessary and proper clause and the general welfare clause means whatever we want it to mean, whenever we want it to mean that thing. And that's just not the case. So I've sort of set it up here. Why is comprehending ratification debates important? And then the next question is, you've sent me some, how do we find this information? Right. Well, it's so interesting you said that because one of our delegates to the New York ratification convention was a man named Thomas Treadwell. And he was not from New York City. He was from the country. And he was the one who who pushed for what we um, now think of as the 10th Amendment. Um, but but that is what he, as a guy from the country, was trying to say that if we don't have these things really clearly defined, everyone will interpret the Constitution however they desire to interpret it. So we need these things um, fully enumerated or, or defined. So the other states get together and they have their ratification conventions and they begin ratifying the Constitution. New York has a ratification convention and in the process of their convention, enough states ratify to make the Constitution real. So now the United States of America can happen without New York. New York knows though that the country needs them. And of course the guys who wrote the Constitution know they need New York. So New York does something really clever. They probably talked to their friends from Pennsylvania and they said, you know what? we're not going to ratify or we're ratifying on condition. And the condition of our ratification is a bill of rights. And if you don't add this bill of rights within four years, we have the right to secede from this union. And so New York takes that 
big list that Pennsylvania had, and New York puts that in with their list, and they submit a huge list of things they want added to the Constitution, or they're going to get out in four years. So this is how New York kind of plays their hand, knowing that they need to be in the United States of America, and they can get something because of the vital need to have them there. And there are some, we all know, I hope, what the Bill of Rights, what's in the Bill of Rights. But some of the things I found really interesting that New York wanted that did not make it into the Bill of Rights, some of them later became amendments. And um, that is that there should be a um, two-term limit on the presidency. Um, New York was very concerned about the power of the presidency and the succession of power to the presidency. Um, they also wanted to make sure that the Congress couldn't grant itself a raise that took effect while they were still sitting in the Congress. Um, let's see. They wanted, um, this is everyone I think will like this, that money could not be borrowed on the credit of the United States without the assent of two thirds of the Senate and representatives in each house. Didn't make it, of course. Um, what else didn't make it? That the Congress could not declare war without the approval of two-thirds of the Senate and representatives. And there is a huge list. They also wanted a term limit on the um, on the terms in Senate because they did not want the Senate to become a perpetual body. They feared the Senate would become like the House of Lords and that the senators, Gee. because of their... You What's know, the worst that could happen? Yeah. They, they, they felt that the senators, because of their prominence in their states would simply get elected over and over and over again. And they wanted- nah, uh, That would never happen. Yeah, no, never. And they wanted that to be um, no more than six years in any term of 12 years. So in other words, you had to leave and go back if you wanted to go back. And here it is, no person should be eligible for the office of the president for a third term. Um, and this was interesting. The president could not command an army in the field. I guess they wanted to make sure Washington didn't go back out and command the army while it was president. So that's kind of... Well, you know, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, so that is in there. So kind of the list of things that didn't make it then, but made it later, are rather interesting. Um, they were they were concerned that the Senate would become like the House of Lords, a, a very powerful perpetual body that would then join up with a president that had no limit on his term in office. And we would find ourselves again with a king and an aristocracy. And since they'd just fought that, obviously they were sensitive to that coming about again. And so were the people of New York. You know, the people who fought the American Revolution were very wary and worried about that as well. And I think people today don't realize that regular people read the Constitution. I always think it's it's kind of amusing when people I know tell me, well, you need this constitutional lawyer really to explain to you what this means in the Constitution. And then I say, well, you know, your average educated merchant and farmer in New York was able to read the Constitution when the ratification debates were taking place. So it can't be that difficult to understand. Bolden makes the case that it was written for the people to understand because it was written for the people. And, and the thing, so there's a couple of things. One of the things that's, I think, really important to remember is the states gave the general government the power. It wasn't the other way around, which is what that guy in Philadelphia was arguing for, that, of course, we, the general government, will take care of the states. They'll do what we say because of supremacy. Uh, 
and it's an easy can it's an easy mistake to make now because we sort of think of things as top down but that's not how it was that's not how it was designed or devised not at all and these ratification documents or at least the new york one says right in its own preamble that the states are creating this constitution and this new government that that all power is originally vested in and consequently derived from the people and that the government is instituted by them for their common interest protection and security and we see that of course in the in, in the Declaration of Independence. So it was very much understood, at least at that time, that the federal government was a creation of the states and that it was willingly created by the states and that the balance of power should remain in the states. I know when I tell people this on my tours, they look at me with an incredibly puzzled expression because they do have this idea now that the president kind of runs everything. And then you have the Congress, which is listening to the president, and then the states, which are supposed to do what the president and the federal government tell them to do. And I think that is the way a lot of people envision the government now. And it's inverted from what it was supposed to have been. For, for instance, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you have people listening in many states, but many of my neighbors here in New York City believe the term states' rights to be almost, um, almost what, a profane term. Yes. A profane term. You know, in, in their minds, states' rights, well, that means slavery. Well, no, it doesn't. It was the very Federalists that created states' rights. It, you know, the states created everything. All rights were in the states, and the states created this federal government to do what they could not do as individuals, provide for the common defense, um, ratify treaties with other countries, um, raise an army if needed, all kinds of things like that, settle disputes between them, things that a whole bunch of, you know, states running around, not coordinated, could not achieve. And also, you know, they recognized was necessary because although they just fought England with the help of France, any day France could turn around and become an enemy. And oh, yes. how would they all, you know, then be able to fight off another enemy? So they needed a way to fight off common enemies and some type of, of joint government was needed in order to provide for those things. But as for interfering in the states, they didn't want any of that. You know... We're using the word state, and, and the people who listen to this and the people who take your tours, they have the vision of a state like we live in. It's, it's part of just it's, it's this one little county of 50, part of this giant conglomeration, and of course, we're just going to all go along to get along. But the, that's, not, that's not how it was intended. That's not what was created. And the ability for a general government to settle disputes is an important thing to observe because they're saying settle disputes between states. The states were like countries. So when you hear Washington and Jefferson say, I am a Virginian. Yes. That's like saying I'm a Frenchman or I'm an Irishman. Or I'm a Spaniard. You are from your country. So when Virginia and South Carolina cannot find an accord, this third party, this general government is going to mediate this dispute between two different countries. Yes. And then 
1865 happens, and that all went to crap. Oh, well, but that's another show. <laughs> well, that is that is um, that is 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 so true. Um, you know, when when someone said at that time, you know, they would say, you know, my country is New York or my country is Virginia, and I, they're right. And that's I, what they meant. And I think you probably know that New York at that time had no camaraderie with New England or Massachusetts. You know, New York. New York looked kind of to the north at that whole thing that called itself New England and said, "Oh, well, they're all crazy up there." Those, you know. The, what do you mean? It's okay. It's okay, Lance. It's just they're doing construction upstairs. It's okay. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah, they, they had. You know, like today we think of the whole Northeast as being one kind of mind, which unfortunately it is. It at is. that time, it was not. There was that whole like center of sort of Puritan thinking coming out of Massachusetts, but that didn't come across into the New York border yet. New York was a completely distinct thing, as was Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, Maryland, Delaware, and as we go down into the South. And, and they were. Um, and, and really, we don't obliterate the idea of individual states until the Civil War, right? Right. The Civil War is what finally says, no, you're not separate countries. You're all just part of this great thing called part of the, the union. union. Right. So let's go back a minute to the idea we had that the ratification was merely this formality, that it was just a boom, rubber stamp and everybody agreed. Not everybody agreed. Right. There were at least two states that withheld for some good time their vote for ratification. Right, New York and Virginia, and also North Carolina. North Carolina, and and you know it was clear that the United States of America could not be whole without New York and Virginia. Um, so they had to, they had to ratify, and they used that leverage to get some changes to the Constitution they thought were important. I think you know when I do my tours and I mention the Articles of Confederation, most people don't even know anymore that that existed. They, they kind of, in their minds, this thing happens called the American Revolution. And I, and I don't think that they're aware that there was a government of sorts that existed during that time, that something had to raise the money in order to finance Washington's army to fight the British. And I, I just don't think we teach that. I, I think that's kind of a, a foggy area in most people's minds about what government, if any, existed. And then most people also don't realize that it was, if you if you say that the 1783 treaty with England was the end of the American Revolution, that it was then six more years until, you know, Washington was sworn in as president. So I don't think people even know there was that gap that they just kind of think, well, we ended the war with England and the Constitution happened and Washington was president and... That's it. We're the United States of America. I, I don't think that they understand that there was a time period there where we did not know what we were or what we would be, and that there had to be an effort to define that. It just kind of happened. No, I think that that's absolutely right. I think that none of that is taught. And I think the other 
the other thing that happens in people's brains is they hear articles of confederation and then they think confederacy and oh, of course that must be bad that's true because we're so in the modern time we've got to do we've got to dismiss anything confederate oh pff, i don't want that well that can't be good you know i you and i could probably get into this another time about the redefinition of terminology in order to oh, give yeah. it a negative connotation so we do not look critically at these things. Yes, confederacy, states' rights, all of these terms having been redefined. Um, You know, I would, being who I am, and when I first started reading many years ago, original documents became really cynical about any time in history, you probably, any time in in, in the modern age that you learned American history became very cynical about what you learned. I started thinking that maybe we don't study that, that pivotal and fascinating time period from the end of the war to Washington's inauguration, because maybe we don't want people to know what really went on during that time. Maybe we don't want kids to know what the debate was over the government. Maybe we don't want them to be educated in that debate and 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 what America ought to be, what America became, what America what the whole debate over what America was and is. Because if you really don't understand those years in between, you really don't understand the evolution of America, I don't think. Just like I would say that if you don't understand what was happening in England in the 1750s and 60s, particularly with the East India Company, you don't understand a lot of what happened with the American Revolution, why the American Revolution happened. So it's not just simply about always about looking at a a tiny piece that helps you understand. You have to look at the greater events surrounding it. So I don't think we can understand the United States of America without understanding that time period from the end of the war, or some people might even say from the cessation of hostilities in 1781, you know, through Washington's inauguration in 1789. Um, it, It is the period of time I think we should study most in American history classes, and it gets the least coverage. All right, so that's your homework for the next episode. Because I think you're right, and I think the re- there there can't be a, one single specific reason. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the big ones is it changes the narrative. It it does, and and I think that some of the other people you've interviewed would probably um, know this timeline better than I do. Um, at which time the narrative changed to make Thomas Jefferson a villain and Alexander Hamilton a hero. Because during the time period I study, which is only to the early 19th century, it's the other way. You know, Hamilton and the idea of strong government and central banking is seen as dangerous and the more Jeffersonian view is looked upon as a better course for America. But at some point, that changes. And I don't know when that changed or if it happened gradually or why, but I'm sure you know some people who know when that changed and why. And that would be another interesting episode for you to do with someone else. There's probably more than one reason, but I think one of the certainly current reasons why would be slavery. Jefferson owns slaves, so he can't be good. So it's, it's the rejection of everything for one thing, and, and and this is going on all the time in media all over the place. You know, someone made a tweet 14 years ago. Oh my gosh, cancel him. 
Oh, I know. And you know, one of the things I do, I do a Hamilton and Burr tour, is I, I tell people, you know, I don't want to disappoint you. Um, I'm a historian, so this tour really is about history and original documents. But Hamilton was not an immigrant. He was not a person of color from the Caribbean. He was a Scot traveling within the British Empire and was not an immigrant. And I said, you have to see Hamilton for who he really was and not imagine he was uh, an, an immig a Caribbean immigrant who stood for human rights and the abolition of slavery, as neither of those things define Hamilton. I mean, one of the things I, one of the things I ask my, some of my customers sometimes is I say, do you believe that Alexander Hamilton would have invited anyone from the Hamilton musical to enter his home, the Grange, through the front door? <laughs> That's a really good question. What, you, what answers do you get? Um, they're puzzled by that. I said, because, you know, Hamilton would have looked down on performers and would not have seen performers as worthy as being guests in his home through the front door. They're also all people who are not white. And do we know of Hamilton having, I don't know this for sure, Hamilton having any guests to his home that were not white who entered through the front door? I, I know there were some well, gentlemen in New York who did. I don't know if Hamilton was one of those, but Hamilton certainly would have not taken the words of performers seriously in any way. Interesting. Well, between the two of us, you are the expert in that. No, none of them would have. I mean, you know, that's that's another topic as well. How did they view performers at the time? This is one of the things that I know that Brian brings up and I think Mike brings up in, in the Tenth Amendment Center videos is and it's well it's it sounds like a an excuse or a dismissal, but it's relevant to the time was were they what was the culture of the time? Right. And one needs to understand that to some extent to understand what the debate was. But one of the things other people don't realize is that, you know, people, I, I don't know if this is a New York thing or people around me in New York believe that since time has passed and education is more formal now and we have this whole system of degrees and, and you know, graduate degrees and graduate schools and professional schools, that we're all much more sophisticated, far better educated, and in a much better position to discuss these things than they were at that time. I see no evidence for any of those claims. I, I don't either. And that is one of the reasons it's good to look back and, and look at the documents they wrote at that time. And you'll see a very deep understanding of governments throughout the world at that time that they examined when they made the constitution, wrote the U.S. Constitution. Madison writes about that, but they all understood the governments of their time and governments of the past that they studied. Um, they also understood something we don't know much about today anymore, called the common law, um, the common law of England, upon which much of our law is based today. So they were all um, well versed in the common law. They all. Also, because people at that time were self-employed, they also understood um, finance and money and trade, I think, better than most people do today because they all were running their own businesses. 
or at least... Well, they also had money then. We don't have money now. Right. And, you know, in one of these, I think, is it, it might be in the one I sent you in Pennsylvania that talks about no paper money. I think, I think it says that the money has to be gold or silver. And maybe I think I, right. Because I, because they already at that point were skeptical of paper money. The colonies had experimented with uh, fiat currencies as we would call them and, uh, and went bankrupt. I think Massachusetts was the first to do that. Um, so they had some knowledge of paper money and they were skeptical of paper money and they wanted some control. Um, they also wanted the um, treasury to control the value of money and that it should only be gold or silver. And I'm sure you know people who know mo much more about that than I do who are financial experts. Um, that's just something I know a small amount right. about. Um, so this idea that we have today that we know everything we know it better than they did because we have better educational institutions. Um, we can look back over time, so we are more moral, and we don't have slavery. Therefore, today, we have a much better understanding of the Constitution and the way it ought to be interpreted than the people who actually wrote it and ratified it. Well, you summed up 2020 perfectly. Yeah, it makes it very difficult to have the conversation. It does when people already believe they have a moral and intellectual superiority. Yes, it does. I'll tell uh, you, I'll tell you a funny story. You may want to keep it in or you may want to edit it out, but I'll tell you a, 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 an interesting story about that. When my book about Theodosia Burr came out, I went on a local um, neighborhood Facebook page to promote my book. My book is a young adult biography of Theodosia Burr, and it's also about the growth of New York City in the 1790s, and it parallels them. And it's full of um, original pictures, letters between Theodosia and her father, Aaron, and it's just a wonderful book for, for teens and young adults to learn about that time period in history. So I thought I would go on this local Facebook page to promote it. And, you know, I talked about the book and I said Theodosia Burr was the first um, formally and fully educated woman in American history. And it's really um, interesting to learn about her. And it all happened right here in New York City. And if you know of any venues who would like to have me come and speak about the book, I can even come in period dress if you'd like. Well, I got such a horrific blowback from the young people in this neighborhood who accused me of whitewashing all of the women before her who had doctoral degrees. Well, the doctoral degree I don't think existed in America till I think is maybe the 1860s. So it would have been very difficult to have one of those. And I explained this to this young woman that the degree did not exist at that time. And even if it did, no women would have it as women were barred from attending college, I think until 1841. But it didn't make a difference because she was a privileged white woman whose father was vice president. And I was whitewashing all of the women of color who made incredible contributions to American history at that time. <sighs> so that was my first taste of how really indoctrinated kids are in college. And, and then I realized that the people who were arguing with me probably had all taken courses in women's studies. And um, 
whoa. And, and, and that's when I started realizing that there is a whole bunch of American history that I think may have been invented in order to create these courses. Oh, I'm sure that's true. There's, it's, it's validating your own existence. Right. So, you know, my, 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 my final, you know, declaration in that whole conversation, which I got out of quite quickly was I said, well, myself as a woman who grew up in the seventies and went to college in the late seventies and early eighties, to me, women were not seen as equals to men until we were educated in the same classrooms with the same professors, given the same degrees, and then allowed to work side by side with the same respect. Until then, we were not equal because I believe that these women inadvertently are, are now accepting a separate but equal doctrine, which I don't think they would accept about education and black students in the 50s and 60s. But somehow I think they're accepting that since women got all of their education separate from men, at some point, those women were still equal to men. And to me, that seems like a very flawed view. And, and of course, Aaron Burr understood that, that women were not going to be taken seriously unless they were educated by the same men that the men were educated by. And only then would women's voice be taken seriously. And so he had his daughter educated that way. So, the, so yeah. Burr has a lot of flaws, but the way he looked at his daughter is not one of them. Right. Well, that was perfect because my next question was going to be, tell me about your book. So I'm going to put a link to that on, also on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 102. Uh, is it both Kindle and uh, hardback? Yes, it is. Awesome. Yes, it is. And I, in the book, I do just a bit of an introduction about some of the things we're talking about um, with uh, references. The book also has is fully sourced. So it's not like some of these other books coming out today that have no source notes. So it's so fully sourced to all original documents um, with a full bibliography so that anyone can look up the documents themselves and learn more. Because I view my role not as indoctrinating people, but introducing people to a topic and then giving them resources so that they can continue to go on and study it more themselves. Rabbit holes galore. Yes, and and I think people are fully capable of researching and making up their own minds. I don't. I agree. Yes, I don't. I, I don't think people need to be indoctrinated into one belief or another. I think people can figure things out. Well, and that just to uh, parting observation about that young woman, and maybe all of the young women on that day. She possesses the. They all possess the ability to do their own research. They've probably been convinced they don't need to. I think so. Or, or I think their education also has an emotional element to it that makes it difficult for them to examine it. You knew, yeah, I, I think that that's probably right. So I'm thinking of Plato's cave analogy and just what what a disservice to the people who finally the precious few who manage to wrest themselves free from their virtual tethers to step outside of the cave and realize, wow, <laughs> they, they did me wrong on purpose. What a terrible thing. I mean, good that they learn it, but 
what a what a waste right right i think so and at least when when i went to college there was a little bit of that but mostly the professors i had encouraged rigorous debate in the classroom some of them even walked into the classroom and themselves would start the debate with a controversial remark that went against everything we thought we knew and i realized those no. times are past <laughs> that's that's what a what a service that professor did. Right. And and I try to do a little bit of that on my tours to get people to see things a little bit differently and to think about, you know, the way they view things. And and one of the ways I I found that is accessible for them is that if I do that as Mrs. Q, because then it's not a twenty first century woman that they're talking to. It's a an 18th century woman who doesn't know what's happened since the 18th century. So I can remind them when they say, well, what a, who were the Democrats and who were the Republicans? I, I can sit, re, I can respond by saying, Sorry. excuse me, what is a Democrat and a Republican? What are these terms? Because of course yeah, I don't know, really I don't, as Mrs. Q, I don't know what they are. Or, or I might, or I might say a two party system. What would that be? Interesting. And, and, yeah, and get them to thinking in terms that, no, we didn't have the two-party system right from the start. That someone who lived through that time would not know what that was. Fascinating. That's an additional benefit to this character. I like it more and more. Or, or one of the things I talk about in as Mrs. Q is I talk about how she's heard that you have something called a withholding tax. <laughs> where the government removes money from your pay before you receive it and how horrifying that is and that we refuse to pay for a tax on paper. And I assure you that if it was presented to us that the king should take money from our pay before we received it, it is likely that the governor would have been hanged on the commons and his body left on display for a few days. Leave it for the buzzards. Right. They 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 had a huge rebellion over a tax on paper, yet we today agree to this horrific thing where the government takes your money before you even have it, and they decide themselves how much of it they'll take. Mrs. Q is horrified by such a thing. She she Mrs. Mrs. Q, Q, be Mrs. Q believes a thing could never happen in America. When someone says it to her, she says... Surely that would never happen in these United States of America. I just cannot see it. Yeah, from her lips to God's ears. And and hopefully that gets people, you know, thinking about, wow, what did we do? When did that happen? Didn't it? It, it did. It, you mean we didn't always do that? You know, they did. They didn't have federal income and state and local income tax taking out of your pay from the start. Yeah, that that alone probably sends them over the edge. Everything else is just too much to take. Right. And 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 one of the things I also remind them is that there was no federal income tax originally because there was a concern that the federal government would become too large and the way to control that was to control its finances. That if it didn't have much money, it couldn't get very big. Well, 
Then we went and put them in charge of printing paper and calling it money. Right. They finance themselves. <laughs> they finance themselves. I was, I was, you know, talking about New York wanting a limitation on the office of the presidency because of their fear that New York also did not want a standing army, felt it was dangerous. New York's fear was that a president without a limitation on a term in office and control of a large standing army could use that army to force the states to his will. And the only person on my tour who got that was a young woman who was in college in London, who was visiting from London. And she looked at me with this quizzical expression and she said, isn't that exactly what Abraham Lincoln did? And, and the Americans you know, had this horrified look on their face. And I looked at her and I said, many students of American history would agree with you. But the Americans were shocked. Oh, boy, we need to get those. We need to get that city opened back up so you can do more tours. And, and I thought it's a terrible thing when you have to go to a 19-year-old woman educated in London and in college in London who sees this point of view, but all of my wonderful American um, customers who do not. That was a new idea to them. It shouldn't have been. No, but that's another podcast. So we need a different type of education. Yep. No doubt. I think some of us are all doing our bit to try to, you know, to do that. There are many of us. That Yes, that's true. There are many. and Maybe we need more. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. It's always great. And I look forward to uh, your comments on my Facebook posts as well. Oh, I will be leaving plenty of Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. There are a lot of links today. Two, for the Pennsylvania debates, as well as some resources for research for you. Both Karen's YouTube channel link and Facebook page link will be there. Oh, culinarylibertarian.com slash 102, as well as a link to her book about Theodosia Burr, daughter of Aaron Burr. She is a fascinating person, and so was her dad, for more than just the most famous thing. Share this episode on your Facebook and Twitter feeds with all of your friends, especially your uh, history buff friends. Uh, have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. Something else I wanted to tell you about. Oh, you know, I, I like the idea, Brian's idea of what he calls, you know, the localism. Yes. Of people all just starting their own Think local, efforts. act local. Yes, their own efforts to um, teach American history. Um, like, like the guy who started the 10th Amendment Center. So that really is kind of what Mrs. Q is all about too, because I think she is in some ways a little bit more accessible to people and more fun. You know, people like that sort of thing. Well, I, I think that that's a valid point. And so I don't know if it's true or not, but I think that people bring a perception to historians, even if they're well-presented, 
as and change their expectations from lay people regardless of how well informed they are i think lay people might get a better conversion to exploring rabbit holes than the historians will that's I, a hunch. I, I have no i have no i have I, no support think, for that idea no i i i think it i think that's real i think it's real so I, I kind of hit two audiences, you know, I have my more intellectual audience and then I have my more fun audience that I'm kind of getting through to by being Mrs. Q. Well, and and they're really, they're really being taught without realizing it. Well, that's the, that's the best way. Right. You know, things that, you know, they never thought of before points of view. They never thought of before because they're listening to a woman from that time. And, you know, people were shocked that Mrs. Q is a merchant because people really do believe that, oh, my God, women couldn't do anything before the civil rights, the women's rights movement of the 1960s. Oh, we couldn't do anything before the 1960s. I'm sorry. We were slaves yeah, until then. Really so, need to go do some reading there, kids. So, you know, they're kind of surprised to know that, well, you know, there were many women in New York who were partners in their father, in their fathers or their husbands' businesses. That that was an unusual thing to see in New York, um, or it wasn't unusual for the women to be taking up arms, as Mr. Q says. Take up, you women, you need to take up arms. Who's going to defend you? We're not there. You need to take up arms, and that the women were very self-sufficient. And what what else did I tell people that they were shocked to hear they didn't know about? Oh, one of the things Mrs. Q talks about is the establishment of courtly love by Eleanor of Aquitaine and the civilization of men and that women have the ultimate power over men. She says, oh, we all know this, that women have ultimate power over men because we have what they desire most, our companionship. Well, And the refusal of our companionship will civilize them. So Mrs. Q would be horrified at women today having given that up that women today no longer realize that their true power over men is refusing to be with them. You know, if you're like a jerk, well, most not people be with are you. aware of that, even on some base level. Right. But that would be seen as some sort of throwback thing. Right. But, but that is true that for until the modern age, that was the ultimate power women had over men. And the, and the ladies of the 18th century knew that very well and exercised it. Was she being euphemistic about the word companionship? Yes. Okay. Like because okay. because she would not say sex, so she would say our companionship. Sure. Well, and but that's that's fine. I just... She was talking about. I did a I did an episode one night on a book called Charlotte Temple about a young girl who gets lied to by a British officer, ends up pregnant and abandoned by him. And I did an episode on that because I thought people would be shocked to know that such a book would be written in the 1790s. Uh, but it was. And these things happened then, too. And Mrs. Q talks about how wonderful the book is in, in, in reminding ladies that you must hold your virtue. You must secure your virtue because it is the most powerful tool you have over your male suitors is your virtue. And so, in other words, let the men all compete for your virtue until you find the right one, the one that's most <laughs> worthy of having it. So, of course, Mrs. Q Mrs. is saying, you're Q not going to... Mrs. Q is a Right. She, and all the girls were taught this. You don't let the men touch you until they've earned the right. 
and, and, and you have that power over them because, you know, the guys are what, they're 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. That's all they want. They, they knew that at that time, you know, all these guys want is to get their hands all over you. Yeah. So make them work for it. Make them prove they're worthy of it. And that was the power women had. And they used it. And they were taught to use it by ladies like Mrs. Q. Yeah, yeah. not taught anymore. Or at least not like that. No, and you know, I, you know, as a modern woman, I really believe that a lot of the discontent you see on the street today, the reason so many of the protesters are young women, is that they no longer do have any control over their lives that way. They've given all that up for, um, what do they call it, hookups, which are great for men, but not so great for women. And a lot of men don't like hookups either, honestly. You know, most men really want to just find a woman who's going to be kind to them, love them, be loyal to them and care for them. But I think women are totally dissatisfied with the hookup culture. They've been completely left at, left, let down by it. They also have been taught to want men who are reasonably weak and like themselves, but on a, a real kind of instinctual level, men do want strong women. Women do want strong men. Um, they want to feel like a man will look out for them and take care of them, even though they're not allowed to admit it in this culture. And I think a lot of what you're seeing on the street is that women who've been so badly hurt by the feminist movement and they're just raging and they don't know where to rage. So they're just raging against anything. And they possibly don't know why they rage. I don't think they know. And they, and they, they you know, believe that this rage that they're expressing is, is power. But, but really, it's not. I don't see women today as really having any kind of power over their lives anymore. Hmm. No, I think that that's, uh, I think that's right. I, I think Mrs. Q had, you know, Mrs. Q couldn't vote, but don't you think Mrs. Q gives Mr. Q an earful when it's time to vote? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think Mrs. Think... Q, I think in private, Mrs. Q does not hold her tongue. Do you think Mrs. Adams didn't tell Mr. Adams that, the, that I mean, oh, well, we didn't know did, that Abigail was in his ear all the time. How, how did we get to a point where we thought that women had no influence over their husband's thinking, their husband's politics? Where, why, where did we get to this point? Women always tell their husbands what they think and what they want them to do. I mean, the, the women of that time were no different in making it clear to their husbands. If you, you know, if you vote in favor of that, you know, that, that, that bill or that referendum, I'm going to be enraged at you. How could you support that? I, I, I just can't believe that women don't think today that those conversations have always gone on. And so only the man voted, but you know, if the husband voted in a way the woman was really angry about what would happen to her companionship? What do you think? I mean, these Oh, how's that couch, new. Mr. Q? Exactly. This is not anything new. But I think in relationships that were functional and successful at that time, they were very much like ours today. I mean, everything is, oh, women couldn't vote. I was like, some days I'm so disgusted. I say, I would give up my right to vote if women couldn't vote anymore. Because I'm so tired of the dopey way women vote. And what response do you get to that? Oh, people get really mad at me. People get really mad at me. You know, I'll say that to some of the women I know. So, you know, I would give up my right to vote so women couldn't vote anymore. 
because women vote in such a ridiculous voting block and on such for emotional reasons that I can't take it anymore. <laughs> I can steer you in the direction of a bunch of people who think exactly like that thought does. I can't take it anymore. And, and, or, or the other way I can just trigger almost everybody is to say, well, the, one of the ways America went wrong was by giving everyone a birthright to vote. That's it. We should have turned the lights off then and left. You know, the, and that's one of the things, you know, that's one of the things, you know, we left out. But at that time, they would have been horrified at the idea of a birthright to vote, right? You had to have skin in the game to vote. Yeah, you should know. Right. You had to have skin in the game. Because otherwise, they said people who don't have any what we would call skin in the game, you know, they'll vote for people running for office who want to give them things they didn't earn. Therefore, the only people who should vote are people who are earning and have a say over where their expenditures go. But I do want to say thank you very much for your time today and for all of your research. I, I know you took lots of notes and wrote lots of stuff and um, and I will make I will I will send you some of this so you can make it available for people who want to see it. That would be great. And don't forget the the New York uh, ratification document. Document, yes. It's it's a little bit easier to understand. Yeah. Yes. But it's I'm going to put it all up because it's 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 fun to look at. It's fun to read because it's fascinating to get a sense of well the the passion and the conviction. Whether or not they were right or the wrong, that's important, but it wasn't just this milk toast, eh, whatever, rubber stamp, let's go, we have things to do moment. It was it was a big, big deal. No, they were just had their 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 colonies virtually destroyed fighting a war that they won, but now they had to define who they were going to be. This affected everyone. So everyone was concerned. What are we going to be now, now that we are separate from Great Britain? What will we be? And, and everyone had some idea and people debated it in the streets and people read the constitution and it affected every person here and every person took notice. It wasn't just a, this idea that, oh yeah, now we're the United States of America and we have Democrats and Republicans and we're the greatest country on earth. And this is the best system, the two-party system. Mm. So it didn't happen like that at all. Not I'm also going to send you a link. I just thought you would, everyone would probably like to see this. It's um, an educational resource on the debates over the Constitution. And it's a, a little easier to understand. And it lays out the day-by-day -day debates and who was advocating for what. And I think people might enjoy seeing yes. that too. I'll send you that. I didn't even know a thing existed and wouldn't know how to ask the question, but I'm glad you have it. Please. I know, I know some groups that are eager for that kind of content. And, and I hope people will check me out as Mrs. Q on Thursday nights. I will put um, a link also. So it's your Facebook page. Yes, you can see it on the Patriot Tours Facebook page. And also there's a link from the Patriot Tours website. For people who don't like Facebook, there's a Zoom link there. You okay. can join me on Zoom. And uh, right now, Mrs. Q is following the Battle for New York. Um, next Thursday is a pivotal battle in the Battle for New York. So Mrs. Q will be talking about getting the news of that battle and okay. what's been happening in Brooklyn over the past week. And a, a lot of my fans watch every week just to see Mrs. Q's wardrobe. <laughs> 
Now you are you still making all your dresses or just the one? I do. I make all of my costumes. I have quite a few now. I also make my undergarments. The only thing I don't make, well, I made one hat, but the straw hat you see me wear, I did not make. Um, but I, I make everything. And now that Mrs. Q is in the country, she needs a more subdued wardrobe because of course her New York City wardrobe is not suitable for country life. No. Everyone stares at her like she's a mad woman. So she's working on a more subdued wardrobe All right. and less subdued hairdo as well. So I, I do have people just follow just to see what Mrs. Q is wearing. <laughs> Um, but next week um, will be all about the battle for New York and a little bit about why men walked all the way from Maryland and Pennsylvania to fight in this battle. Um, if we're to be believed that it was simply to secure slavery in America, why would these men with nothing have walked to New York to participate in this battle? What a good question. You have to mm -hmm. watch the... To, to find, find out. out. Right. Right. Very good.